Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ryan. And uh, thank you for your semi-joy-filled clap. I, I don't, I, I, you you got to go all in, man. It's either all or nothing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to say thanks to John Neufeld for putting together a set of worship that was very um, calm and reflective on a day that's so noisy. Uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday, for those of you who are like, what day is it? Um, and, and today's just filled with noise and messaging. It's just nice to start the day thinking about the love of God and singing to him because we're the worshipers. They're just helping us to worship more quickly, you know. Uh, so that, that was really cool. And, and I do have a, before we, we begin, we're going to pray. We're going to get into uh, 1 Corinthians 5 again. I, I, we have a prayer team that prays for you as you come in. And we believe as a church community that God is always speaking. He's always moving. He's always bringing us close. And so someone on our team came to me right before I got up and, and said that they had a real strong sense in their soul that there's someone here, and they were very specific on this side of the room, that uh, came in with a real heaviness about you're not worthy to receive the grace of God. Like that, yeah, God's grace is real, but, but no, not for you. And God in his love and kindness, just wanted to remind, now if you're here, that's cool too, uh, but that, that remind you that his grace is sufficient. And she was saying specifically that, that this was so overwhelming to the point it was making it hard to live. And if that's you, just receive it as God's good news in present day to you that whatever he's done in and for you on the cross and in the resurrection is enough to cover anything you've done. And that's always good news. So let that be an encouragement and a reminder. And it's a reminder to all of us that when we come to a gathering, we're not just coming to sing some songs and hear a prepared message. God is always speaking through his people. And we wanna be open to that. All right, uh, let's, let's pray and let's get our minds ready to talk about how we define marriage. Lord, we thank you that this is the day that you've made and we can rejoice and we can genuinely be glad, even though in our soul, many of us feel unworthy. So God, we come into your house, so to speak, to meet with you and to hear your words, words like forgiven. And so God, we receive all that we need from you because Jesus, you paid for it all in full. You've already done the work and now you're inviting us to receive the reward of what you've done out of love for us. So God, in response, the rest of us, all of us, we just wanna live for you and we don't know how sometimes in our, our culture is screaming messages, just screaming messages and many of them are against your heart. So we wanna listen, God, today. Help us to listen well and to walk with you. And in Jesus' name we pray and amen. Amen. Oh, okay, so I want to start with a quote from a newspaper uh, from the USA Today. I read this article just a couple of weeks ago, and my mind was thinking about the series, and I'm just going to read part of it. Here's the headline. Historic Methodist rift is part of the larger, larger Christian split over LGBTQ issues, and that's the headline. And here's what the article starts with, and it's a statement that you're, you're aware of. Quote, Thousands of congregations have left the United Methodist Church amid contentious debates over sexuality, including a dispute over whether to accept gay marriage and 
LGBTQ pastors. The rift marks the largest denominational schism in U.S. history. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. A quarter of the church's approximately 30,000 congregations said they plan to remove themselves from the United Methodist Church as of December 31st. And the church is one of America's largest Protestant denominations. The article continues. The historic rift in the United Methodist Church is part of the larger split in recent years in the Christian religion over issues of gender and sexuality. Similar divides have led to splits amongst Baptists, Mennonites, Presbyterians, and other Protestant denominations, uh, end quote. This is just one headline. This is just one. Uh, and if the trend continues, I think we're going to see a lot more conversation in the public sphere over what's happening within local churches and with its, within what's happening in the culture at large. We live in a world that says, do what feels best to you, and that's become normative. And then you have other voices saying, well, that cannot be true. So the question we're asking ourselves as we walk through the letter called 1 Corinthians is how do we follow Jesus in a culture that often does not? Now, I'm going to remind you what I said at the beginning of this series. If you're new to our church, you're just visiting this weekend, welcome, welcome, welcome. Here's the challenge. You have to listen to all eight weeks of this a message series within 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. You have to listen and, and, and debate and work through all eight of them because if you only hear part of it, you're only going to hear part of the story. So let's just begin where we left off last week. Why are we talking about defining marriage? Doesn't marriage already have a definition? Well, I'm going I'm to suggest to you, depending on the person, you're going to get a different definition. And right now, we live in an interesting time as followers of Jesus and those who, who are part of a local church because it is possible in our culture to see definitions in the marketplace and in law, in our state and in our country, that don't align themselves with the way of Jesus. And we're presented with this all the time, but in, in particular, right here in Oregon, Oregon defines marriage in a different way than the Bible. What do we do? Well, we read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1, 2, and, and just verse 6 again. We already walked through the whole chapter. I just want to read a couple of verses again. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who'd been doing this? And then jumping down to verse, uh, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens or spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? Well, last week we looked at a framework. And the framework, first week we talked about what a worldview is. And last week we built on it. But three things we focused on from chapter 5 that I need to recap again. Number one, we learn the scriptures and apply them to all of life. What was going on in Corinth, as is, is going on right now in our world, is there are ideas floating out in the culture. Some of them fit the way of Jesus fully. Some of them fit the way of Jesus partially. Some are in direct opposition to the way of Jesus. And so we as Jesus people, what we need to do is to learn the scriptures well. It's why we're hosting Learn It, Give It. Because we want to prepare ourselves to think biblically. We cannot represent Jesus well without knowing the Bible. 
And if we don't know the Bible, then we're gonna receive any idea as right because if it feels good, it is good, and that can't be good. That can't be good. Feeling alone cannot be the driving force for our behavior because then what do you do in a situation where a maniac feels like wiping out another culture because they are different? So feeling alone and, and thinking alone, based on my own rationale, rationale alone, cannot be enough. We have to ground our minds in what is already grounded and has stood the test of all of human history. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of reflection on this book, and it is held up against every culture and every kingdom that has fallen, and we take it lightly. So we need to grow in learning the scripture. Second thing is we need to make room in our lives for correction and discipline. So we live in a culture that predominantly is not following the way of Jesus, as was Corinth. It's why the letter is so relatable. So what do we do? We're to make room in our lives. So hear me clearly these distinctions that if, if you miss, you'd think this is callous. If you say you follow Jesus, then what you're saying is you will obey him. And now, if you're not yet following Jesus, continue to search and look. But if you say you are, then you're saying that all that he is is now all that I have become and am becoming. So it is okay for your church community to call you out if you're outside of Jesus-like living. That's actually healthy. That's what he's telling Corinth to do. They're allowing something that was against the Bible and the culture, and no one was speaking up about it. Now, we're not mean, but we call each other to turn back to the way of Jesus and humble our lives to him. Now, at the same token, that does not mean we treat everyone the same. Number three, we treat those outside of the Jesus family differently. I don't expect you, if you're not following Jesus, to follow Jesus' ethics. I don't, if you don't follow Jesus, I don't expect you to, to live your life in accordance to the Bible. I want you to know the Bible more clearly so you can know Jesus more clearly, but I'm not gonna impose that value on you. And this is where I think Jesus' followers have made some massive mistakes when it comes to sharing the gospel. Rather than sharing the good news that God loves them and Jesus came to rescue them and to bring them the wholeness and life and he will do the changing and transforming. Rather we said this, this is what God has said, why are you not living like it? <laughs> when, how can we live like Jesus without Jesus? So what we're doing is we're getting our minds ready to now talk about very specific topics that are not all addressed, although marriage is addressed in chapter six and seven and all throughout the Bible, but some of the topics are not particularly addressed in the Bible, but we want to talk about them because they matter because our culture is saturated in these conversations. So here's the plan for today. We're gonna to stick to marriage. Number one, we're gonna look at the beautiful vision that God has given. If we only think about the things we're not called to do, we're gonna miss the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to show us the flourishing life, the good life. And so we want to look at the beautiful vision that's laid out in the Bible about what it means to be married. And then I want to look specifically, we're going to end with a statement that, that is a guiding principle statement that we use as a church on how we teach and how we see and embrace marriage. Okay, so that's the plan. All right, what's marriage? If you ask people out there, you're going to get 
hundreds of different expressions of what the answer would be. But I want to look at four things that you see clearly in the Bible. All I want to do today is I want to quote a lot of Bible. It's going to be on the screen. Get your phone out and, and either jot a note and look at the reference or take a photo of the screen. I want to go from Genesis all the way to Revelation and look at the beautiful landscape of marriage. And I'm not going to teach it all, so we're just going to keep going, going, going. And then we're going to come back to it later. But sometimes if you hyper-focus on the detail but don't see the beauty of a painting, you're missing what the painter and the artist intended at the beginning. All right. Genesis 1, where do you see marriage and sexuality? Well, it begins at the beginning. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. And subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So the beginning of any conversation about biblical or Christian vision for marriage is to realize that God created them both. Now, here's what I want to make clear. Getting married doesn't make them into the image of God. I think sometimes we idolize marriage and make it everything. No, marriage is something, but not everyone is going to be married, and it's actually not God's plan for everyone to be married because singleness, as we're going to see, is a gift as well. So so being married doesn't make you like closer to the image of God. He made them both separately in his image, and he takes two image bearers who have his DNA And then he brings them together. But chapter one isn't actually about marriage. It's about origin. God creates everything and he says it's good. All right, Genesis chapter two, starting in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. And for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the side or the rib, and that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And that is why, and God tells us what happens and then why, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, his household, and is united to his wife, creates a new household, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What's the point that we're supposed to see here? As you read it, God creates everything and it's good, Genesis 1. But then we hear the same story told over again, which makes no sense. 
you just told us, God, that you created mankind. Now you tell us that you created mankind. Why twice? Because we're supposed to get a nuance the second time. The man and the woman are different. He makes mankind. All humans have God's DNA. We're all made in the image of God. But yet we are made differently. We're not the same. So both bear the image of God equally. Both are valuable equally, but we are biologically different. The out of is to show distinction. And, and it's to state the obvious, men and women are biologically different. But it's, it's more than that. God had something in mind. Uh, so the first thing I want to see is that marriage is created by God. That, that's the first idea you, you can't miss. If you start with marriage as being some social enterprise or anthropological you know, eventuality, if you make it about something that culture has built, then you'll miss the heart of the Bible and miss the heart of God. Number one, marriage is created by God. He makes man, he makes woman, and then he brings them and introduces them together, and they're to leave their otherness, their families, and come together. All right, I don't think there's anything new probably for most of us if we've been following Jesus with that. The second thing is probably also fairly well known. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. So we see in chapter two that God makes a suitable, there was no suitable helper for Adam. Now, here's where we want to drive in a little deeper. What is the word suitable? A long quote here from Preston Sprinkle in a book called People to Be Loved. Side note, our community group leaders have already received a copy of it. I highly recommend. There are many good resources on, this, on the topic of marriage and, and the biblical vision, and I think this is one of the best. So I'd encourage you Preston Sprinkle, people to be loved. But a long quote, the Hebrew word translated suitable by the New International Version is konegdo and is only used here in the Old Testament in those two verses. Konegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it's actually a compound word made up of the ke, which means like as or like, and neged, which means opposite or against or in front of. So Catch this. Together, the word means something like as opposite him or, quote, like against him. It's a complex word that shows how it is that Eve can qualify as the perfect partner for Adam. Just get that. No, no suitable. What does it mean to be suitable? Suitable for Adam is someone who is not like him, is sort of against, but connected to him. That's an interesting word that God would give us. But it shows that the differentness of Eve is what God was bringing to Adam because he needed someone who was like him, but not exactly like him. Now, the Hebrew word, I don't have a slide for this word, ezer, is, is almost always used in a military sense when a suitable helper, helper is hezer. And some have seen helper as like kind of a negative thing, like, Will Adam just need an assistant? No. The, the word Azar is almost always used in the military. As a matter of fact, it's used of God. God is Israel's Azar. He's God, God is Israel's helper, strong one. So 
we see that she, Eve, is fit for Adam in her strength, in her ability. And they together can best live out God's mission together. These are the origins of marriage, and it's interesting, you find it on the first few words of the Bible. This actually matters. So in his book, People to be Loved, he continues this way, Preston Sprinkle, three things seem to be necessary for marriage according to Genesis chapter two. Number one, both partners need to be human, duh. Two, both partners come from different families. Adam is to leave his family. Both partners display sexual difference. There is a differentness. There's a sort of like but against. They're, they're not the same. Uh, okay, so that's Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you think that marriage is the best thing ever and everyone lives happily ever after. Yes or no? No. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve together collectively disobey God. Who did it? They both did it. Eve disobeys God, Adam disobeys God. They both disobey God. And out of that, you have a chain reaction that sometimes we forget. As a matter of fact, by Genesis 4, you have their offspring, Cain and Abel, murder happens. And Abel, the innocent one, is killed by his own brother. And then right after that, if you read quickly, you miss it, Lamech goes on to marry multiple wives. So, Eve is brought to Adam and the two become one flesh and very quickly sin enters the story and what happens? Lamech Lamech takes on multiple wives and the cycle of disobedience continues and hurt continues and marriages break down and families break down and cities break down and businesses break down and, and life breaks down. Boy, happy Super Bowl Sunday. This is really encouraging. Well, actually, this is important to note when we think of God's vision for marriage. He knows what is right, but he knows that we've all been broken because we've all rebelled against him and we've all done our own thing. But in the, is, in the scriptures, marriage about starting a new family. And this is what I wanna highlight. Just as an overview, we're thinking big picture today. Actually, no. Third thing we need to know about marriage. Marriage is actually a picture of our covenant relationship with God. Marriage is about a man leaving his household and a woman leaving her household and starting a one flesh, a united relationship. It's interesting that they come from one flesh. They're made distinct and different, but now they're brought together. This is beautiful poetry that speaks to God's heart. He wants to unite us. He wants us to live close to him, and he wants us to live close to one another. And so marriage is about more than human reproduction and families and legacies. In other words, your life is about more than getting an education and getting a house and and sharing a bed and a budget and some holidays and maybe raising some kids and then thinking about the far off future and then looking back and having hair and losing hair and mourning losing hair and, you know, all those things, right? Life is about more than all of that. Marriage in Scripture speaks to our life with God. Marriage is a human picture of what God wants to bring us into in the greater picture. A helpful quote by Rebecca McLaughlin, another great book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Our students already went through this book in a series in the past. Quote, the relationship between man and woman finds fresh meaning 
when God's covenant with his people is pictured as a marriage. Quote, for your maker, capital M, God, is your husband, declares Isaiah. Quote, the Lord of hosts is his name, Isaiah 54, 5. So parenting metaphors sometimes liken God to a father and sometimes to a mother. But in the marriage metaphor, underline this, the roles are never reversed. God is always the husband and never the wife. Now you're like, why bring up that idea? I, I want us to remember that what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just about Adam and Eve and families and lineage and all that. That is part of the story, but the larger thing is that Adam was made and out of Adam, Eve was made, right? And in a similar way, God is the creator and God creates his people and he wants to bring, like he brings Eve to Adam. Again, she's not less than, she's different than. And we are not God, but we're created in the image of God. So the picture of a marriage relationship speaks to the covenant that God wants to bring with his people. That's why God is always pictured as the husband, because in the case of the Bible, Adam was made first, and God is first, and God brings those who are connected in, to him into deep relationship with, with him. The point is that without uh, God, right, we're not going to have the help that we need. God created us to be with him. Our sin has broken that relationship with him, but God wants to bring us back. And the way he does it, he actually uses the marriage metaphor. Okay, so marriage is a picture of the good news. The the rescue story of Genesis 1, 2, sin in chapter 3, chapter 4, and forward, where God promises to bring his people back, is now pictured in marriage. Whereas relationships have been broken apart, God wants us to be united with him in the deepest place. Now, the question becomes, these are all pictures early on in the Bible, how did Jesus view marriage? Do you get any nuance, anything different, anything contradictory from the life of Jesus? Number four, the fourth thing I want us to see is marriage as taught in the scriptures is affirmed by Jesus. Matthew 19, verses three through six. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female and said, quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, end quote. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So now this is a question not necessarily about the origin of marriage, but it's about the breakdown of marriage. But I want us to see a couple of things very quickly. What does Jesus quote? When asked a question about divorce and what, what and when can a divorce happen, and if you re read the Jewish law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are provisions put in there for how a divorce is supposed to happen. And Jesus is gonna say in his full teaching that those, those provisions in the law are not the heart of God. He allows for them because their hearts were already callous. And he didn't wanna see women kicked to the curb 
and left uncared for. So in the Jewish law, there are some provisions for how a certificate of divorce is to happen. But notice what Jesus quotes. Jesus could have simply quoted Genesis 2.24 about them being united as one flesh. But where does Jesus begin? Jesus begins by quoting Genesis 1.27. In, in thinking about marriage, don't forget the Creator's decree. He created, that is a, alone enough to think about. God created. We didn't create, and your parents didn't create you. God created. If someone is here, and you are here, you were created by God. And that's beautiful. You say, well, I don't know him. It's still beautiful to know that the one who makes the universe is actually not just thinking about you, he's your author. He's your maker. So God creates, and he created them, male and female. And so Jesus affirms everything that was already written and taught in the scriptures about God's heart, about what marriage is and isn't. Now, already, uh, I recognize, especially if you're in university right now, you say, Jose, that's very interesting and archaic, but it goes against everything I'm learning right now. And I want just to suggest to you that you need to think critically about the source of everything you're learning right now. Because the source of what you're learning right now could be sourced in something other than the truth of God. And you're gonna have to think critically and at some point to determine is what God says about reality, is the creator, what he says about reality, real? Or is what my prof and some, someone born in the 1900s right? Because most of the thought being propagated today is by people who've been, written, uh, who've been living in the last couple hundred years, who did not create the heavens and the earth. And if their ideas are out of sync with scripture, we're going to have to critically evaluate who is more trustworthy. Is God more trustworthy? Or is the evidence of books written by very flawed humans? Okay, we're living in a culture that seeks to redefine what male, female, and marriage are. So it's important that we first understand the teachings of Jesus. All of this is simply intro. You say, Jose, he, he created the male and female. What do we do with other variations than male and female? Because there are biological variations that do happen. Don't worry, those conversations are coming. We need to go layer by layer and think through but today, I just want to focus on marriage. I want to read two more texts, and I'm not going to teach them. I just want you to see that marriage is all over the Bible, and so the Bible is very clear and complete in its expression of what marriage is and isn't. All right, two more, one from Ephesians. So we've had the Old Testament, the beginning of the Bible. We've had the teachings of Jesus, the middle of the Bible. Now, reflections on the teachings of Jesus in the letters, Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. Are you still there? Some of you are like, man, when's the kickoff gonna happen? Because I'm getting nervous. All right. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body 
of which he is the Savior. Again, I'm not going to teach on it, but you notice already this combination of one flesh, his body, husband, wife, speaks to our relationship with God. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, the two become one flesh. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are the members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I just want you to notice how the biblical writers read the Bible in light of Jesus. Because all Paul has done is taken Genesis and the teachings of Jesus and now applied what this means. Marriage is about human relationships. And if it's your desire to be married someday, that comes from the heart of God. And God does want a man to like, leave his house and be united to his wife and to, to join together with him. That's the nuance. Because of Jesus, we see that what happens in a Christian marriage is not the husband and the wife and life and future. No, it's the husband and the wife and God. And they independently are united to God. Remember, we're created in his image. We're to know him as an individual. Becoming married doesn't bring you closer to God. But that man and then that woman, both connected in covenant relationship to God, now can enter into a covenant relationship with one another. And in that, the beauty of all that could happen. So Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 as finding its full fulfillment, not in the human marriage, but in Jesus. It's, it's in Jesus. And so this has, this has all sorts of implications that actually elevate the beauty of marriage. Uh, what does it mean? It means because of Jesus, uh, a wife has the ability to honor her husband, and, and as Jesus is the one who doesn't come to do his own will, but he does the will of the Father, and Jesus says, I can submit my plans to the will of the Father, and he humbles himself so in the same way um, in a marriage relationship, a, a wife is able to do that because of the power of Jesus. And a husband can lay down his life. What does it mean to lead? Jesus goes to the cross. That's what it means to lead. He gives his life, his blood, for the good of the people that he wants to marry. And so, by the way, again, we'll get back to these because we're going to see more about the nature of marriage in 1 Corinthians. Um, But this isn't about one being over the other. If you read that quickly, you feel like, man, the husband gets all the good and the wife gets the slops. No, that's a complete misreading, and they wouldn't have read it that way. It means the, the man who in their culture was the Lord was now called to be the servant. He was to humble himself in a culture 
where the man didn't humble himself for anybody. And then the wife can lovingly say yes to what God wants to do through their relationship. This is a beautiful picture of three, husband, wife, and Jesus. Uh, And because of Jesus, we can do these things. All right, so finally, how does the Bible end in terms of picturing marriage? You actually see it at the end of the Bible, two quotes, Revelation 19 and 21. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for, quote, the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So at the beginning of the Bible, God creates in a place called Eden, a perfect place, and there's a a man and woman, and he brings them together in relationship. And at the end of the Bible, you see a garden-like city, and, and there is a wedding. But now it's not one man and one woman in their own relationship with God around them. Now it's actually the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus and us, God's people together. Revelation 21.2, I saw the city of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, these are all pictures. So marriage points ahead to our eternal relationship with Jesus. A couple of implications, and I want to get to the statement that I said I was going to read, and then we're going to respond with some singing, and we're going to offer prayer at every gathering. If you need prayer for anything, we would be honored to pray for you. A couple of implications here that I think we need to tease out. Number one, you might not ever get married to another person in this life. This actually, in Revelation 19 and 21, is a word of hope. You might not get married here on earth. Singleness is a gift. We're gonna see it in 1 Corinthians 7. But no matter what your relationship status on earth, every Jesus follower is gonna experience the eternal wedding. We're all gonna experience marriage in its fullest expression because we're gonna be united with Christ. And then another implication is you might have already been wounded in your marriage right now. You might have been left. You might have been abandoned. You might have been divorced. You you might be struggling in your marriage right now. But you know what? Revelation 21 reminds us when we're looking ahead, we see that the perfect one, Jesus, is the one that we're going to be related and connected to. But uh, So it's important that we just think about marriage in light of what the Bible actually says. All right, to give perspective. Why tease this out? Because everything I've just said is historic and Christian, and you can see in sermons for thousands of years. None of this is news. Matter of fact, this is pretty flat. Yet it's imperative that we think about these things because until May 19th, 2014, which was just 10 years ago, um, you could not marry someone of the same sex in the state of Oregon. And now you can. So how do we view marriage in a culture where anyone can marry anyone? And can I, can I just speak plainly? Because unfortunately, I'm the only one with the microphone. And some of you are like, Jose, but you don't understand. I do understand that this is difficult at times to swallow, especially if in your background, you've not had any, any biblical instruction, if you have family 
who are living right now in a relationship that says, you say, well, it seems like they're going against what the Bible says, or yourself. You're already in a scenario right now. You're like, I don't like this. And maybe it could be God's internal conviction, not condemnation, not shame, but like, this is not in line with my heart. But here's what we need to do as a church. We need to stay grounded in what is true and know it so that we're able to have conversations, honest conversations, good conversations, listening conversations with people who have a different view. And so we wanna be prepared as God's people to know what we believe so that we can love other people well uh, and not bash them over the head. So here's our definition as a church. I'm simply going to read it today. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna be teasing out parts of this. All right, I would encourage you maybe take a photo of it because your community group leader already has it, but you're gonna actually read it in your group uh, this week. We believe that God wonderfully and immutably creates each person as male and female. These are two distinct complementary genders that together reflect the image and nature of God. Genesis 1, 26. Rejection of one's biological sex is a rejection of the image of God within that person. We believe that the term, quote, marriage, end quote, has only one meaning. The uniting of one natural-born man and one natural-born woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in Scripture. We already read it, Genesis 2, 18-25. Now, we believe that God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a natural-born man and a natural-born woman who are married to each other. 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll get to, 7, which we'll get to, and Hebrews 13. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged outside of marriage between a man and a woman, 1 Corinthians 6. Again, we're going to be looking at these in the weeks to come. Uh, to be fair, we did not write this statement as an elder team, but it's one that was carefully written, written by a community of churches that we're in relationship with, and we believe it reflects the teachings of Scripture, which means we base our belief on what the Scripture teaches and not on what we think and not on what people say. Um, and, and I get, friend, I get the internal angst. I, I really do. And all I'm asking is that you continue to keep an open ear, even if it's half open, an open ear to all of it. We cannot do this in one week. Uh, all of us know people who are not in alignment with this biblical statement, um, and some of us aren't. So what do we do with those feelings? Remember what I said two weeks ago. Our first response to hearing something we disagree with is feeling. Logic comes later. It's hard to think about something critically when I feel offended by it. So all I'm asking all of us to do is to take these feelings and not bottle them. It's why we wanted to do this during community groups. Remember, we are looking at establishing a biblically informed worldview, a Jesus-centered worldview. And that worldview is going to clash at times with ideas that are floated out there for all sorts of reasons. 
And let me be abundantly clear. When I say this is a biblical worldview, I'm not saying if you don't follow Jesus that you are going to follow this worldview or that I'm going to force you to follow this worldview. I am simply saying, though, if you choose to go the way of Jesus, this is Jesus' worldview. And so today we're talking about marriage, but we haven't gotten into the details. Next week, we're going to unpack what is sexual immorality. Uh, The week after that, we're going to begin to work ourselves through LGBTQ because these are conversations. These aren't issues. These are people. And so hear me clearly. God's vision for marriage has not changed. It hasn't. And God's vision for marriage actually won't change. What has changed is the sway of our culture. We have to confess that. Because 100 years ago and 200 years ago, this was not the sway in our culture. And so biblical Christianity hasn't changed. But we live in Portland, Oregon. It helps, though, that I travel around the world. For those of you who only live in this region and only understand what's going on here, you need to know outside of Western Europe and the United States, most of the Christian church around the world doesn't understand why the church in the West will so easily cave in to its convictions and change its teachings. The majority of the church around the world, this isn't theory, I, I have friends all over the world who asked me, Jose, what is wrong with Christians in America? Why, why won't Christians simply say humbly, this is what the Bible teaches, and take the repercussions? Why so quick to change their worldview? And, and the, the challenge, on top of that challenge, is that there's a movement within the church or within churches who even claim to teach the Bible to reinterpret the Bible and say what the Bible is not saying, to say that they're biblical. And that's troubling. Uh, So coming full circle, you have the United Methodist Church, which has the word united in it, has now broken off 7,500, and it's going to increase, are already formed their new Methodist community, because this defining issue has defined them. And, and so this is, this is sad. This is not reason to gloat. I'm, I hope you're hearing that I'm talking down to this movement. No, no. We ought to lament, because these are all our brothers and sisters. They're all our brothers and sisters. Whether they stay or whether they go, they belong to Jesus. And this hurts. So how do we live this out, okay? Two things I need you to do and I'm asking you to do. Number one, we honor God and the scriptures while still loving people who differ. Our entire leadership team here is fully grounded in everything I've just said. I'm not, this isn't like my view. This is even even in just our church's view. This is just a biblical view. And I realize that some here are like, I don't know. I would encourage you if you have anyone in this community who's berating you because you think differently, they don't represent us, okay? We love one another. So we want to have ongoing conversations as a church community that are both honest and charitable. We didn't set you up 
to have community groups to throw in grenades and hurt each other. That's just not the point. Feel free within the context of a safe home or coffee shop to say, well, I, does the Bible really say that? And really deal with the text. But don't use the, well, I think card. Right? If we're going to say, I think differently, let's come ready with an informed opinion and let's talk about things that matter. And in the end of the day, let's be charitable to one another knowing I don't know where that person is and I don't know where they are in their heart. And if they're not even connected to Jesus, why would I think they should believe any of this anyway? But if we do follow Jesus, just hear me. None of this, none of this is just optional. It's, it's required that we hold the biblical worldview because we represent Jesus. So, Lord, now we humbly come to you and we come with all of our stuff, our issues, our baggage. Uh, we confess that we don't know a lot of what you've written and we have all sorts of ideas floating in our own heads. Some of it is just out of step with you and we don't even realize it. So we're asking you, Holy Spirit of God, to draw us near so that we can learn from you and be transformed. God, transform us by the renewing of our mind so that we'll be able to test and know your good, perfect, pleasing will. And we can live our lives like living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. God, we don't talk about you. We want to live with you and know you and enjoy you. And we just need you, God. So help us. Help us to love one another. Because you said, this is how the world will know that they are my disciples, by their love for one another. So help us to live out 100% grace, 100% truth. Because we, we don't know how to do that, God. But we want to. So empower us, Holy Spirit, to follow the way of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? And uh, we're going to sing and we're going to go to the table. If you would like prayer for anything, I encourage you. Uh, our prayer team is to the left and to the right of the stage. They would love to pray with you. Even as we sing, you can come. During communion, you can come. After communion, you can come. Uh, receive from God this morning.